flat is a state of mind. Get to know the people, science, and stories that make the Kansas outdoors more than flyover country. This is Flatlander Podcast, presented by the Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks and the Kansas Wildlife Federation. What I see on my dirt is undescribable as the Bible. Speaking to the purpose, so I've been steeped in the Kansas Leadership Center training for like the last couple of months. I'm doing this training through Fish and Wildlife Service, and it's all based on KLC, which is so cool. And I've been reading um, all their books. And so anyway, it just has got me thinking about purpose and holding to purpose is so important. And so I think before we start here today, just, and I know I mentioned this in the email when we first reach out to you, but the purpose of our podcast really is to inform and engage the hunting and angling communities. And I think, you know, we're fresh off this becoming an outdoors woman weekend. And to me, you know, thinking as a biologist, it almost feels, so it feels so good to introduce people to hunting and angling and these things that we love to do, but it almost feels disingenuous to not also share with them that we're in crisis and we're in an extinction crisis. We are on the verge of grassland biome collapse. We're losing species. We're losing water. Um, and so I think that this podcast and, and feel free to add in mm-hmm. Nadia, but yeah. this podcast really, we want to, we want to fill that gap for people, that knowledge gap and connect when you go turkey hunting, it's great when you harvest a turkey, but also the numbers are on the decline and here's why, or here are some things to think about. Well, and also just making more well-rounded conservationists. You know, people who aren't just focused on the things that they like, but understanding that everything is interconnected. And uh, even if you aren't actively engaged in something, you can still be an advocate. So, yeah, just creating supporters for the things that we care about and that we hope others will care about. Yeah. And so obviously water is a huge piece of that. So this is our first, this is going to be our first podcast focused solely on water, actually. Well, we did one with Libby Albers. From, from, Is that uh, year one cause. Yeah. Okay. in the first year to try and like lay the foundation. Cause we realized a lot of people are misusing the word watershed or they don't understand what watershed means. Um, so she kind of laid it out and she like made us look at our hand and the stream. Who was my co-host? I it think it was Lindsay. Me. It was it Lindsay. Wasn't me, yeah. So yeah, Libby from cause amazing. So listeners go back, listen to that episode, <laughs> um, to give yourself good foundational knowledge. And then today we're going to be talking about the Kansas water plan, uh, which is very exciting, very timely. And with us, we have, well, first my co-host Nadia. Welcome everybody <laughs> back to Flatlander. We're just rolling right into things. We have with us uh, Dawn Bueller. Say hi, Dawn. Hello, everyone. She's the chair of the Kansas Water Authority and also the executive director of Friends of the Caw and an amazing kayaker. And we have Connie Owen. Say hi, Connie. Good morning. She is the director of the Kansas Water Office. So we are in great company here. We have two experts to talk us through the Kansas Water Plan and all kinds of Kansas water issues. Okay, so let's get started. So the Kansas Water Plan Is that a thing that's unique to our state here, or do other states have water plans? Um, I think I'll take that one. This is Connie. Um, Other states do have water plans, and um, the Kansas water plan is pretty much like what it is in most of the states, and it's a pretty daunting concept of a document that identifies all of the water needs of every kind, um, surface water, groundwater, water quality, water quantity, and makes recommendations for what to do about those particular needs. 
And it's generated through a lot of grassroots um, local input from organizations we call our regional advisory committees and is um, approved actually by the Water Authority, which is an advisory board that Dawn is the chair of and we'll probably chat more about. But yes, other states do have a similar type of document. Okay, and the and the most recent version of the Kansas Water Plan, I'm assuming there were past versions? There were past versions. According to statute, it's supposed to be updated every five years. The last time it was updated was 2009. Okay. So... Things happen. Things happen. <laughs> and um, I might mention that I've only been in the job two and a half years, so that wasn't We can't me. blame you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yes, we did go through the process and come up with a final version that the Water Authority approved last August. Exciting times. Yeah. How yeah. many how many pages long is it? It is almost 300 pages long. Okay. But it's very well formatted. It's available online. I encourage folks to just even just go in and read the executive summary yeah. and get a feel for it. It's a very comprehensive document. And I think what's encouraging for me is to know that the state of Kansas has such a document and that it's guiding uh, the future of water resources. Yeah, that's that's interesting. So I was asking my husband, he's a big outdoorsman, before um, this interview, I was saying, hey, what, what kinds of things do you want to know about water? And his one thing was, I want to know, is there a group of people thinking about water and water issues in Kansas? Because that would make me feel a lot better. And I was Absolutely. Like, yes. <laughs> Every <laughs> day. <laughs> yes, many, many people. Cool. Okay. So multi, many, so many states have water plans. Kansas water plan, hot off the presses, August, 2022. One thing I noticed, and I did, I read the plan, not super thoroughly, but as a kind of lay person, and it was interesting and very well formatted. I was curious. So there seems to be a lot of different entities working on water. And I was getting a little bit confused. There's the Kansas water office. What, what other entities in Kansas are the big kind of players? There are three main players. There are, I think, about 16 state agencies that have work that impacts water or involves water. But the three big ones are the Kansas Water Office and the Department of Health and Environment and the um, Division of Water Resources within the Department of Agriculture. Okay. So the Division of Water Resources is water quantity. The water rights people, they um, regulate, enforce and manage who gets to use water for what, how much, and all of that. And the Department of Health and Environment um, manages, regulates, enforces water quality. And what the water office does is a very different role than either one of those because we don't permit, we don't enforce, um, but we are the planning policy coordination agency for the state. So our flagship responsibility is developing the water plan that then guides the work of those other agencies and and local agencies as well. And we also have a separate role that is public water supply focused, where we have contracts with the federal government for use of water out of federal reservoirs mm -hmm. that serve many municipalities and irrigators and all kinds of public water supplies. So we have our planning function and we have our water supply function. This is, this is really interesting for me. This is not yet working in state government. You know, I hear some of these terms and these, uh, you know, department names being thrown around, but it's really interesting to me that it's such a collaborative effort because that to me is kind of unique. 
usually we all have kind of our areas of expertise. Oh, this is the one entity that handles this, or this is the one agency. Whereas I'm, I'm pleased to hear that when it comes to water, this is really a group effort. It, it really is. And, and I, I have to say, and Don can chime in on this as well, but it, it's a, it's a very fortunate situation because the people that are staffing and running these other agencies and my own staff, everyone really does work together well. And they really are trying to do the right things for water and work together to make things happen. And that's the way our statutes set it up so that we have, for example, we have this water plan, but the laws also set up the water plan fund which is supposed to help pay to implement said plan. And that money has to be divided up among all these different agencies because there are things that we do that the other agencies don't that are in the water water plan. There are things that KDHE does water quality-wise. So this single pot of money has to be shared. And we come together and work it out and draw priorities up. And I'm just really grateful to be working in an environment where everybody I need to work with, we really do all seem to be heading in the same direction. That's great to hear. And and I appreciate the breakdown of, so KDHE is focused more on quality. Um, Division of Water Resources is quantity. And then K, the Kansas Water Office is more planning coordination. Where does the Kansas Water Authority fit into that? <laughs> The Kansas Water Authority is within and a part of the Kansas Water Office. So um, we have uh, 11 uh, ex-officios, which are the head of all of the agencies, and then 13 voting members. And the voting members, 11 of them are appointed by the governor. And two of them, the other two, one's appointed by the Speaker of the House and by the president of the Senate. And then the chair of the Water Authority, my role, is appointed by the governor. So I was appointed by Governor Kelly. I do, uh, my position does require Senate confirmation. So I had to go um, in front of the Senate and present, <laughs> which is <Wow>. always interesting, <laughs> and, um, and get approval to be the chair of the Water Authority. So um, we have a really great group of people. They uh, represent different water-related um, like organizations. So, for example, we have a person that represents um, the Kansas um, Conservation Districts. We have a person that represents watershed districts. Um, there are people that represent the groundwater management districts. And so there's um, all these different um, roles that everyone brings to the table. And so we, um, our statutory um, obligation is we're charged with advising the governor and the legislature and the director of the water office, which is Connie, on water policy issues and making recommendations um, to the governor and the legislature and the director. And so one of our charges is to approve the state water plan. And so Connie and her staff, you know, developed the document and then it goes out for public comment. And it was a really comprehensive public comment, Connie. I mean, you had really great feedback. There was a lot of feedback and very meaningful, very thoughtful that we then did incorporate into the document. So then it comes back to the Water Authority and it's approved and then it's presented to the governor and the legislature. We also um, approved the budget 
Um, so the money that is used to fund the state water plan. And then we also provide an annual report to the governor and the legislature that details kind of how that money's spent and the projects that we have. But we also make policy recommendations, and we did put those into our annual report this year. And those policy recommendations, um, we'll get into this a little bit, centered around um, the Ogallala Aquifer and around a lack of funding, which we have some great news about that today. Yay. I can't wait to get into that. I know. I'm like, can we just do it now? No. <laughs> well, I, I do have a so a follow-up with the, the KWA, so the Kansas Water Authority. Um, you said there's... Th- 13 voting members and your char- one of your charges is to advise the governor and the government on how to implement water policy of those 13 are we talking like experts right water researchers like what is the um spectrum of expertise on that in that group well it's a it's a huge vary um with that there's people that are experts in their specific area so for example we have a person that represents um, public water supply and this person has a lifelong career in public water supply Um, we have a person that um, represents um, i think it's large and small municipalities right Right. we have two separate one's large and one's small Mm -hmm. so So there's all these different um the folks that represent groundwater management districts um, both both of them are on the board of groundwater or all three of them are on the board of groundwater management districts. So there's huge amount of um, uh, knowledge around the table. I'm always so impressed with how much they know, but there many of them are specific in their knowledge. They know a lot about their specific topic and um, it's a really um, passionate group of people. And I will say within this framework also there are these regional advisory committees and so we do need to talk about that because that's a huge part of this grassroots effort there's 14 of them across the state in the east they're watershed based in the west they're more aligned with the groundwater management districts and each one of these regional advisory committees are made up of people that are um, i call them boots on the ground they're the people living in the communities working on these issues, they know what the issues are in their watershed, and um, they bring those issues to their regional advisory committee. And so they develop goals and action plans, and those are um, an addendum to the state water plan. So if you go and look at that document, you'll see all of the goals and action plans from all of those regional advisory committees. I think there's six water authority members that before they were Uh, appointed to the water authority were on regional advisory committees and i'm one of them i spent four years on the kansas regional advisory committee and i was the chair of that committee before i was appointed by the governor and that was an amazing place to learn about water issues and the reason is because of connie's staff they do such a great job of breaking down all of the water issues across the state. Like she talked about public water supply prior to joining the regional advisory committee. I don't think I understood how much of a program there was at the state um, dealing with water issues in the reservoirs. For example, I live in a rural area and my water comes from a reservoir and that is that marketing contract is managed by Connie's office. Hmm. Lots I'm of processing process. right now. I'm just I'm, pro- I'm mentally processing this right now. 
Well, it is it is hard, I think, for the average person to understand where their water comes from. Right. I mean, even my I'm a biologist and I didn't know I live right on Tuttle Creek. That's a water supply. I mean, that's just like mind boggling. Yeah, you just turn on the faucet and it just appears. And it just right? comes out. <laughs> how I'm it's cur- all connected. I'm curious, how often do these regional advisory committees meet? That depends kind of on um the demands of the time and our our schedules throughout the year because we do have them the regional advisory committees specifically involved in certain things Um, for example they help provide recommendations for the budget for what should the water um, state water plan funds be spent on for the next appropriation cycle so our um, we have meetings that are scheduled to time with those budget recommendations, but they kind of meet, I don't know, not necessarily monthly. That's pretty quick, but um, it depends on the individual rack and the planner, because as Don was mentioning, there's a member of my staff who's always um, in charge of each of those racks. So each of the racks has a member of the water office that sets up the meeting, facilitates the meeting, kind of helps them move forward with implementing the action plans and goals that they have. So I'd say several times a year is a pretty average. And for those who didn't catch on, when she's saying RAC, we're talking about Regional Advisory yes. Committee, and that Sorry. may be the coolest acronym I've heard. I in know. State I was hoping. Yet. I was hoping it was going to be okay to use yeah. that acronym. Yeah. <laughs> so is that those RAC meetings? Is that where? the public could show up and just observe and learn? Absolutely. And we encourage that. Cool. We'd we'd love to have people come and just hear what's going on. You can also volunteer to be a member um, on a regional advisory committee. And we're coming up to our membership drive for the year. So there will be press releases and announcements and material on our website um, because we do want as much engagement as we can possibly get, whether you're a member or you come and just listen or chime in or ask questions, because that is part of our structure. We are the only state agency, I think, that by law incorporates this grassroots kind of structure. And so we're required to bring in the local voices and the local expertise. And so we encourage people to come and listen, be a part of it. Well, Um, that's really neat then. So if people wanted to be involved with the authority, that is something that would need to go through the governor's office of appointments. But almost better than that, you can be involved, you know, locally through your regional advisory council or committee. Yes. And um, you don't necessarily have to join, but if you want to join, it's open to the public. Right. And those are public meetings, as are the water authority meetings. Perfect. So anybody can come and attend a water authority meeting and see what's going on, listen, um, talk to the other people that are in the room. Mm -hmm. And so we have about five of those a year, the water authority meetings, and they're deliberately designed to be in various places throughout the state. Because our charge is to take care of water for the entire state, for everybody and all uses in the state. So we do try to geographically distribute where we meet so that it's easy for everybody to get to one from time to time. Perfect example is we just had our meeting in Kansas City, Kansas. And in June, we're going to Dodge City. Cool. So we're going to be all the way across the state. I will say that my in my career, one of the highlights has been serving on a regional advisory committee. And the reason why I loved it is I love doing grass works. 
um, grassroots work. And I do that in my day job, but I also got to do it with the regional advisory committee where you really try to solve problems, basically. And I love being on teams where you solve problems. Me too. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I'm wondering, so I'm a junkie for meetings, which is weird, <laughs> weird thing to say, um, but Naughty Night, so a couple, I'm, I'm thinking of a couple podcast episodes that we've done, one with the commissioners and about commission meeting, um, game commission meetings, and the question was asked, if I show up as a member of the public, am I going to get called on? Like, is it a thing that I need to be nervous about? Or can I just show up to one of these meetings and just listen and rest assured I'm not going to be called out? Yeah, you can just listen. The water authority meetings um, do not typically have a public comment period, but the regional advisory committees do. So if someone wanted to have public comment at the regional advisory committees, there's an opportunity. But yeah, you can just be silent and just listen and hang out and learn or meet people and get engaged however you want. And then my second question is, we did an interview with Jim Pittman with DU, and we were talking about how Cheyenne Bottoms was dry um, this past waterfowl season, and a lot of hunters in our various circles were just really upset and complaining about it, and it was hard to know where to direct them to have like a positive outlet for that, not anger, but frustration. Would showing up at a rack meeting be a good place for a hunter to just listen? And I've already answered my own question, because yes, I feel like it. It would be if you're frustrated about what you're seeing out West and uh, I don't know. Or you want to actively be part of solutions, right? Yeah. That's a better way to say it. This, this is for you. Yes. And just asking a place to ask questions and to learn more. And um, yeah, that's a place to do it. It's the local opportunity to become engaged. Perfect. Okay. Before we get off the topic of public input, I have one more question related to the water plan. So you guys said that that is um, updated theoretically every five years. Does that mean that the public is able to provide input throughout that, you know, four, four and a half year span where information's being collected, recommendations are being given, or is there a set period, you know, at which time input is received? Well, typically, there is a process involved as the development of the plan sets um, follows that there is a public comment period where we actively seek public comment on a draft plan so that we put something out there so people can respond to it. And however, if someone would want to comment in at any time, and say, here's something I think you ought to think about for next time, then we would keep that comment and put it in our files for when we do update the plan. So the public is welcome to comment at any time about what they'd like to see in the future. Okay, great. So let's, let's get into the Kansas water plan itself. So there are five guiding principles to the plan, and I wonder if we should just go through each of the five and kind of talk about the high-level themes. Um, So the first one is conserve and extend the High Plains aquifer. So uh, yes, (laughs) break that down for us. (laughs) Okay. At some point you might need to tell me to just stop talking because this is a huge, huge issue and um, it is getting a lot of attention now, which is good because we need to have awareness and, and action taken on it. But the, the title of that refers to the High Plains Aquifer. And 
in Kansas, the High Plains Aquifer has three components. The High Plains Aquifer itself extends over several states, almost up to Canada, almost down to Mexico. Wow, I did not know that. But the in Kansas, there are three components of it. And the easternmost is the Equus Beds Aquifer, which is over under Wichita. And the Great Bend Prairie Aquifer is just west of that around the Great Bend area. Those two components tend to recharge fairly quickly. And they're also in a part of the state where there's more precipitation than there is out west. So the the behavior of those two components is different than the big piece out west, and that's the Ogallala Aquifer. So when you hear about Ogallala Aquifer depletion, we're talking about the big western component of the High Plains Aquifer. And the depletion is severe. It is ongoing. And it was intentional, unfortunately. But um, when you have a finite resource that is being used in a way that more is coming out, more is being withdrawn every year, than nature puts back, you're going to run out eventually. Mm -hmm. And so we're at a point now where people tend to pay attention to things when it hits home, right? And in many areas now, it is a critical, critical situation. The Kansas Geological Survey does a lot of studies with this. They measure the well depths and they do um, modeling. And they put together a map that you can find on their website or actually in the Kansas Water Plan that shows the estimated usable lifetime of the Ogallala. And it's color-coded. And there are oranges for 100 years left to 50 years left. There's a dark, dark orange for 50 to 25 years. There's a really dark red for 25 years. And there's brown for it's gone. And there's a lot of brown. Mm. And there's more and more of the really dark 25 years or less. So we know we have to use less of that aquifer. It's just unavoidable that if we don't use less, it's going to be used up. So explain to listeners, when you say this this is intentional, what do you mean by that? What I mean by that is, um, and this is a very um, broad overview description of the history from a non-historian, so <laughs> bear that in mind, but when... The aquifer, when the the treasure that the Ogallala Aquifer is, when that was discovered, then, of course, it allowed for the growing of crops and the generation of an economy that no one dreamed possible prior to that time. Pair that together with the development of the technology that allowed for massive irrigation with the center pivot irrigation systems, and at that time, the fact that although there was a water rights system in place, it didn't require getting a permit. You didn't have to get a permit from the state to pump that water. So, you know, the I hate to use the pun because it's just terrible, but just open the floodgates. People just went kind bananas. of a free for all. It was a, yes, and but it generated a tremendous economic benefit for all of Western Kansas and. 
it didn't take too long before people realized, oh, wait a minute, I have to drill my well a little deeper now because it's not working so, you know, so, um, so well as it was designed. And then decisions were made and a major study was done in the 50s to say, what are we going to do about this? How are we going to manage this going forward? And we can either decide fundamentally that we're going to hold steady and do, you know, approach this from a safe yield, let's maintain a balance approach, or we're going to choose to say, well, this is one heck of an economic benefit. And yeah, let's, we got to do that for, for the benefit of our citizens and population. And so the decision was made, yeah, we know that this is not in balance, but we're going to allow for more to be taken out than the system could ultimately sustain. Mm. So um, over time, as you can imagine, when you take more out and more out and more out, when there's a finite amount, you're going to run out. So there was also the assumption, I mean, that seems like a horrifically irresponsible decision to have been chosen, but at the same time, they were thinking, well, there will be there will be breaks on that system. There will be breaks that will kick in. And here here's the break that they envisioned. The water rights system in the state of Kansas is a first-in-time, first-in-right system. So if you have the older water right and you're not getting enough water and it's because the newer person's using it up, you can contact the state and at no cost to you, they will take care of you and they will possibly shut down the junior user so that you get your full amount. That's the way the water laws are designed. And so the thinking was, well, if this becomes that much of a problem, then the senior water right holders will enforce their water right and will shut the juniors down and that'll kind of help keep it in balance. But that didn't happen. Mm. And it's kind of almost common sense to think, of why it didn't happen, because on the one hand, do neighbors want to enforce against neighbors, right? Do you want to call the state and say, my next door neighbor is making it so that I can't pump my water, and they're your friend and your kid's baseball coach, and you see them in church, and so, and in, on top of that, a lot of these operations expanded so that one particular individual family entity owned junior and senior rights. Oh, wow. So if they said my senior rights being impaired, it was possible that their own juniors would get shut off. So the breaking system that was envisioned really didn't happen. So that was another part of the problem. So we have an area, now we're facing a situation where more water rights were given out than should have been. And we have the water that is disappearing. And so we're running up against the problem of how do we go forward with trying to maintain an economy when we absolutely have to use less water. And there is really good news on that front. Okay, because I was just going to say, can you tell us how to fix that? (laughs) Does the plan cover that? Sure. Yeah, what's the good news? There is good news. And um, obviously, I'm referring a lot to irrigated agriculture because a Upwards of 85% of the Ogallala use is by irrigated agriculture in western Kansas. So um, here's the good news. There is a group of local producers in Groundwater Management District Number 4 in northwest Kansas 
that took advantage, they helped create and took advantage of a new um, statutory opportunity to develop their own plan to reduce their own use. They said, we know we got to cut back, but we want to be in charge of that. We don't want the state telling us what to do. So this program allowed them to come up with their own plan. It has to be state approved. And once it's approved, then it has the force of law for a period of five years. It's a temporary. Give it a shot. See if it works. See if you want to keep doing it. So in about 2013, in GMD, acronym for Groundwater Management District, Mm -hmm. GMD4, this group created this kind of program, and it's called a Local Enhanced Management Area. Another acronym, a LEMA. (laughs) And, And... Over time, what they found was with the use of precision agriculture techniques and technologies that not only did they meet their target for reductions, they exceeded it, and they were more profitable. Wow. (sighs) Yes. Yes. I know. This took a better turn. This took a much better turn. So, yes. So, after all that doom and gloom and terrible information, there's a way out. And so they were so successful at it that another Lima that covers the entire groundwater management district was put into place. And now GMD1 in far western Kansas has followed suit, and they now have two Limas. This is the way forward, is actually making um, decisions on how you're farming and the technology you're using. I mean, people can manage these things from their phones, They call out their phone. They have soil moisture probes in the ground that tell them, do you need to water today or not, no matter what it looks like. And that saves so much water. And they're 30% reduction in their water use, which is absolutely amazing. It's huge. It is huge. And it's been really exciting, and we're hoping that that's part of what's in the water plan is the recommendation that this kind of thing spread. We have to have this spread throughout the Ogallala Aquifer in western Kansas. And I think what's important about the Lima program specifically is, you know, it allows for local control. They can make the decisions in their own community or their own area on how they're going to move forward. And Connie was talking about those um, moisture probes. We were on a tour. I have to tell this funny story. We were on a tour, um, and there was a young farmer, younger than me, um, that was uh, showing us the moisture probe technology, and he pulls his phone out, and he says, Guys, it's not rocket science. It's right here on your phone. You can just look it up, and you can tell that you've used that I need to water today or I need to not water today. Yeah. It was great. Yeah, it's it's amazing. I was so impressed. <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 so cool. And um, in fact, during the legislative session this last year, the managers of GMD four and GMD one, Shannon Kenyon and Katie Durham, were honored with a special proclamation in the legislature for their their leadership in in this particular area very well deserved yeah Yeah. good for them yeah there's some really great things happening with groundwater management we're really excited and another another success story we like to talk about success stories don't we don um the city of garden city is really leading the way with municipal water reuse 
And that's another way that we can um, approach the problem of a declining aquifer is when you pump the water out, use it several times, right? Don't just keep pumping fresh, fresh, fresh. And they're amazing. They have a partnership with wildlife and parks and local producers and local industry and a grant from the Bureau of Reclamation. And they're really putting together a, a tremendous template for how to go forward on the municipal side with using less water from the aquifer. Wow. A lot of hope. Yeah. Lots of hope. Yeah, this is great. So guiding principle one, check. (laughs) (laughs) Problem solved. No. (laughs) Okay, guiding principle number two is secure, protect, and restore our Kansas reservoirs. What can we say about that issue? Well, fundamentally, reservoirs um, fill up with silt over time. So when you stop a moving river that has silt in it, sediment, and you hold it still, the sediment's going to drop to the bottom. And over time, it fills up. And it's not a surprise. It's not a defect in design. That's just what happens. But then what does that mean? That means that the capacity in that reservoir, the space, shrinks for being able to store water that you need in a drought, for being able to create space for when you have floods, and on an everyday basis, being able to supply the water that hundreds of, thousand pe- hundreds of thousands of people rely on for their daily water supply. So we have a number of reservoirs in the state. We have 14 federal reservoirs, and my office contracts with them for storage space in those reservoirs. So the actual reservoir is owned by the federal government, but we have a contract with them for space in that reservoir. And then we turn around and contract with municipalities and some special districts for the use of that water. So, for example, the city of Lawrence, they have a contract with us for water out of Clinton Lake. And then we, in turn, have a contract with the federal government for storage in Clinton Lake. So that's how that's provided. Um, So we do have an issue with the sedimentation that occurs and builds up over time. Right now, Tuttle Creek Lake, which is the workhorse of northeast Kansas and the Kansas River system, is about half full. Our, our, storage, our storage capacity is about half full of sediment. So, again, what are we going to do? This is another, the supply is shrinking, and we got to do something different, or it's just going to go away. And um, there's a lot of research and development that's going on with that. We do have a pilot project going on at Tuttle Creek Lake now, which we asked for money from the legislature for years and years and years and they gave us enough and enough and enough that we built up enough to do it um, (laughs) that we have a partnership with the core and it's a water injection dredging project where it's not conventional dredging where you just scoop the sediment out and have to find somewhere to put it it's resuspends it injects pressure into the bottom of the reservoir to resuspend the sediment so it flows out more naturally kind of mimicking what the river would do if the dam wasn't there. Interesting. And as you can imagine, a lot of planning and science is going into um, preparing for this project because we also need to be very mindful that on the back end that that sediment, the increased sediment that comes out, does not create problems for wildlife habitat, public water intakes downstream. I think also... um, You remember in 2019, the big flood, you guys know it because it flooded many of your state parks. And um, in 2019, Tuttle Creek filled in with 8% in one year. 
And if we, in the face of climate change, we have another 2019 and another 2019, I mean, it's already half full and it's not going to take long to get to 70 and 80% full. And so we're going to have to do something. And this pilot project is an opportunity for us to see whether or not it's going to work. And there's a lot of science involved. Um, The Corps of Engineers and the Water Office have worked on how are we going to test all of this upstream and downstream of the dam? How are we going to make sure that it protects wildlife? And so it's, it's going to be, I think, an interesting project to watch. And I think we're all really hopeful that it works because we need to do something. And um, right now it's kind of the only thing we've got. Yeah. And we are, hydrosuction is another possible, but that's a little ways down the road in terms of R&D. I had a follow-up question. So you'd mentioned that um, a natural part of a river's process is this siltation and sedimentation. And I always kind of thought about it in terms of erosion and sedimentation are bad and it's because of farming or land management techniques upstream, but I kind of glossed over the fact that that's a normal part of a river to, to move about and things, you know, sediment falls in. But how much of that, with Tuttle Creek being, you know, almost at capacity, how much of that can be impacted by going upstream and working with landowners? Or is that a... That still has to happen. Okay. Yeah, that's still a part of the equation. There has to be work in the upper parts of the watershed to slow down the sedimentation. But, you know, there's stream bank erosion, of Mm -hmm. course. Um, You know, if you go all the way back to pre-settlement times, many of our streams are surrounded by grasslands. And so they looked a lot different than they do today. There's a lot of, you know, high banks. When you have a high bank, like on the Kansas River, when you're down on the river and you see the high bank, the high bank is where the river used to be. It used to be connected to its floodplain, and it no longer is. But we also have communities, lots of them, that live along the Kansas River. And if we didn't have those reservoirs, we wouldn't be living there because we would have flood after flood after flood, and it would not be, I mean, the Kansas River's floodplain at Wamego is four miles wide. So nobody could live within that area without risking being flooded if it weren't for the reservoir system. So, um, but the reservoir system also holds all that sediment back. And so, um, you know, there's, you look at the, Many of the fisheries biologists, um, I just in fact just talked to Chris Steffen a couple days ago about the silver carp on the lower end of the Kansas River, and we were talking about the fact that they are a bit sediment starved. A lot of the native fish are in the Kansas River because of the reservoir systems that hold back all of the sediment. And if you have a day where um, there there's no rain like we haven't had rain, right? And you're the only water feeding the Kansas River is coming from the reservoirs. You can see down to the bottom of the sandbar. It's clear. Mm. And but when it rains, it's like muddy soup. And so the the river goes from one extreme to the other. And you think about the aquatic life and what they have to deal with to go from one extreme to the other. Stress kills. Yeah. That's yeah, stressful. Yeah. Never thought about that. (laughs) Sediment starved is a new term for me. We might have another podcast. Yeah. (laughs) Just on sediment. Just on sediment. I've heard your biologists use that term, sediment starved. Oh, okay. Yeah. Fisheries folks. Cool. Yeah. So when we talk about 
I mean, really, we're talking about water quality right now, right? So we were talking about, you know, as a resource quantity. Now we're talking about quality. What about um, our state's water quality as a whole? Like we've been talking a lot about agriculture and wildlife. What about households? What's that looking like for the state right now? Well, it depends on which household, because if generally um, households that are served by a public water supply, then they are monitored and regulated by the Kansas Department of Health and Environment for the water quality that is being provided to their customers. Okay. And so that's one realm, so to speak. And another realm is people with domestic wells. There isn't a mechanism for monitoring those or enforcing against, you know, because they're people's private wells they can they can request testing they can seek it out but the state cannot come in and say we're going to test your well for you and tell you what to do about it so another part of this is um not just like yes the drinking water side of it is important and critically important um we all get our water downstream from another area that just used it and so what's really important is the prevention piece of for water for water quality and one of the big things about the state water plan that I don't think a lot of people understand is that the dollars that go into that fund are used mostly for conservation practices on the ground so they might put in some sort of um, like I know part of it there is a program that does cover crops or that puts in buffers or that um, puts in different programs stream bank stabilization that will help prevent some of these water quality issues. But another thing that I don't think we talk enough about, and Nadia, you brought up, you know, like the urban areas is uh, the stormwater runoff. And with climate change, we're going to have more of these big, really intense storms and um, making sure that our wastewater treatment systems are uh, where they need to be and that we don't put such a load on those wastewater treatment plants by uh, doing practices in the watershed before the water ever gets there. And so a lot of the cities can put in green infrastructure. They can put in stream buffers. There's all kinds of things that can be done so that the wastewater or the drinking water plants don't have to work so hard and the technology doesn't have to be so expensive in order to provide drinking water. A perfect example of this is the city of Lawrence. They have invested in the Clinton Lake watershed with uh, the RAPS program, another acronym, Water Restoration and Protection Strategy. That's a program through the Kansas Department of Health and Environment. And some of that funding comes through the state water plan and some of it comes through the EPA program, 319. But that program allows for conservation practices on the ground. And you talked about Libby earlier with the talking about water and that nonprofit Kansas Alliance for Wetlands and Streams um, has the RAPS program in the upper Clinton watershed. And so the city of Lawrence is saying, hey, let's try and filter out some of these pollutants on the ground before it ever makes it into Clinton Lake to begin with. And I think that really is a big part of some of the work that we need to do. But it requires partnerships to get it done. Yeah, and obviously people who are interested in being proactive 
you know? Absolutely. It's so, it's so easy, I should say, when we have so many issues that we're facing and so many challenges, you know, you feel the need to prioritize what's happening right here and now that I need to deal with. But these issues, like you said, it's better in the long run for everybody if we instead focus on being proactive and conserving as opposed to reacting once issues are already there. Absolutely. And I also think about um, some of the programs with wildlife and parks, like um, your uh, wildlife biologists have the um, Habitat First program. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you can pair those up. And those programs also help benefit water quality. Um, There's a lot of programs that do that. You look at the Forest Service. Um, So there's lots of opportunities for landowners to put conservation on the ground. And the state water plan is just another part of that. Yeah. What's typically good for wildlife is typically good for us. That's right. That's right. Nicely said. Okay, so another guiding principle is reducing our vulnerability to extreme events, which you kind of touched on with Tuttle Creek, and what if we have another 2019 and another 2019? What are some other examples of uh, trying to reduce vulnerability to some of these events? Well, typically, uh, historically, that has referred to droughts and floods. Um, It is now very clearly encompassing climate change as well, because climate change is creating extreme events. Um, both in terms of major precipitation events, unpredictable precipitation events, increased wildfires, um, heat, higher winds. So um, one thing that my office does on the drought side is we are the lead of the governor's drought response team. So my staff is constantly monitoring along with Um, other agency folks in partnership with, they keep an eye on um, federal, national science and data and weekly forecasts and incoming information all the time. And when it seems that conditions are changing, then we convene the drought response team officially and present a map of the state of Kansas and designate each county either in watch warning or emergency status. And the team evaluates, you know, what is an appropriate designation for each one based on the information that's coming from um, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and from NASA and the Drought Monitor that's a national organization um, keeping tabs on all this. And so when they kind of come to an agreement, which usually doesn't take very long, then each county receives a proposed designation and it's an actual color-coded map. And we send that to the governor's office and say we recommend a drought declaration reflecting these different statuses for each county. And when the governor declares that, then there's a press release and, and it's an executive order and it will remain in place until modified. And the most recent one we did was last September, and we are in the process of that drought response team considering an update. And unfortunately, the update is a worsening condition, Mm. which um, is not good news for this time of year, because typically this is when things are wetter and we're not yet into severe drought declarations. But most of the state is in line for emergency status. And so what does that mean when those designations are made? It's like when there's a federal disaster declared. It it opens the door to different kinds of assistance and different programs. Um, 
there are all kinds of things that, that can then um, click into place to help people out. One is, for example, um, there can be a real quick arrangement for water out of state fishing lakes to help water livestock. There can be emergency releases from the Corps of Engineers reservoirs and, and things like that, and and federal financial assistance from USDA and those kinds of things. So unfortunately, um, drought is something that we have tended to think of historically as a temporary event. Like we're in a drought, and then the drought's going to be over, and then in the future there will be another drought, and then right. that will be over. And that's really not what we're seeing. Um, Climate change is changing the climate of Kansas. And the east is expected to get a little bit wetter, but in very unpredictable ways. And the west is predicted to get hotter and drier. So there will undoubtedly be variations in the severity of that. It won't just keep getting hotter and hotter and hotter without, you know, breaks here and there. But we do need to be prepared going forward. So municipalities need to have plans in place and pretty much every industry needs to have their, their contingency plan, you know, for what to do. And this kind of ties into that using less water and getting more benefit out of it. Because if you're used to using less water, then the drought will not hit you quite so hard so fast. Right. So some of these things, you know, overlap on each other in terms of what's beneficial going forward. Good. I'll I'll say, Connie, as a citizen of the state of Kansas, I really rest a lot easier knowing that your team has your finger on the pulse of the drought and the floods and all of these things. Right. Because, you know, we all turn on our tap and we want the water to come out. And, you know, when it's a time of drought, um, you know, there's there's a lot to consider to make sure there's water for, what is it, 2.9 million people. Well, we have a, a staff member, and, and he is an absolute expert genius and handles all of the reservoir operations and works with the Corps. And he is almost on call 24-7 when, when situations are bad because they are continually checking with all these different reservoirs, not just in the Northeast, but in the Southeast and, and Central, do we need to make a release? Is this, you know, are we running too short on flow down here? Do we need to add to that river? Do we need, and that management is ongoing um, throughout the summer traditionally, but I think that's going to be kicking into a higher gear. But the system works, and having that system of reservoirs really does help. For example, last summer, um for quite a long period of time, a lot of Southeast Kansas communities received water because of the reservoir releases. And without them, they would not have had adequate water in the river for intakes for their people. So, wow. Um, but it's, I, I wish we could control it. I wish it was something, I mean, not that I want to control nature. I don't. I don't think that's our role. But it's unfortunate that we really just have to react Right. I think we need to take whatever steps we can to prevent things from getting worse and aggravating climate change. Absolutely. But it's already in motion and we need to be able to to adjust to that. And, you know, speaking of uh, your listeners, you know, I'm a hunter and an angler also, and I relate that back. I think it's helpful to understand 
the bigger picture of water because I can't tell you how many times, you know, I'm like, oh, Perry Lake's releasing. I'm going to wait and I'm going to go fishing because the fish are going to bite. They're going to come up the Delaware River and and it's just going to be uh, great fishing. But now to understand why is Perry releasing water and you know, is it a time of drought and they're releasing for downstream water intakes or is it a flood event and there's too much water in the reservoir? And just thinking about all those different aspects and how it impacts my recreation also, I think is important to understand. Absolutely. And there are people that are watching that 24-7. Absolutely. And the three-day outlook from the Corps of Engineers. I got that on my phone. I'm hot <laughs> on it. <laughs> My husband will say, hey, any of the reservoirs are leasing? Let's go fishing. <laughs> Hot tip. Pro tip, yeah. yeah. Pro tip. <laughs> okay, let's wrap up our chat about the Kansas Water Plan. The last guiding principle is increase awareness of Kansas water resources. What does that look like? What that looks like is every single public event that we've done or been a part of or attended, we hear, we need to know more. There needs to be more information out there about water and what we can do and what our situation is and all of that. So there is a very high priority placed on that. And we do outreach events throughout the state. And we we use, um, employ the RACs, the regional advisory committees, to um, help us understand what events we can attend or that we could create. So um, we do have some things in the works. We've wrapped up, we've ramped up our website. We have really cool um, GI, ArcGIS interactive things there now that one of my brilliant staff members created. And so working with the other agencies, um, we have plans in the future to go even farther and try and really help um, people be able to easily access um, whatever they might be curious about, about where does my water come from or why should I care or what's going on. So, Yeah, and I can attest to the website. It is very user-friendly. It's very well organized. Obviously, working for Wildlife and Parks, we contributed some information related to outdoor recreation, but I even found it interesting enough that I was clicking around and looking at other things that I normally would not have been exposed to. So I do recommend people check out that website if you're not interested in looking at the 300 Odd page plan. <laughs> <laughs> and you don't have to wait for it to download. Exactly. Just go. Click it open. That's, That's right. <laughs> so we before we get into our concluding statements and questions, tell us about the good news with the funding. What just happened? Okay. I historic. Could, it's yes. historic. Yes, very good word. Um so really kind of in a nutshell, um Senate substitute for House Bill twenty three oh two, what it does is it adds $35 million to the state water plan fund. Of that money, $5 million is pulled off for a technical assistance grant program where people can um, apply for money. For example, a small municipality that says we've got a water quality problem, but we have no clue how to deal with it. We need to hire a consultant or an engineer. We need to apply for a grant and we can't do any of that stuff. So this would allow for them to get a grant to hire someone to do that kind of work. Um, that's five million that comes off. Twelve million comes off the top for a water projects grant fund, where people can apply for grants to actually implement projects that they need to do for water related infrastructure, which could be you know concrete and rebar, could be green infrastructure. We'll kind of see how that develops. Those two grant programs will be administered by the water office. It's brand new for us, so. We are developing that, and we'll need to hire some new folks for that. 
excited to get that going. Um, and the rest of the money, when you kind of do the math and shake it out, it's $18 million more into the state water plan fund than we have previously had Wow, per year, which is wonderful because with the fees that what, what we have before now, um, that goes into the state water plan fund was a total of about 20 million a year at best, about 12 million in user fees and 8 million, um, from the state, um, if they appropriated all of it, which for many years they didn't. So max of 20, now we just got an additional 18. So that's really exciting. So that's the good news. That's incredible news. That's the great news. Yeah, Yeah. almost double, double the budget. Almost doubled, yes. Yeah. So is that money coming from the state general fund tax dollars? It is. Okay, yeah. We're really excited. Um, We've been, there's been a, big effort for a long time to get more money added into that fund because Connie what was the first year and it hasn't increased since the 80s oh it was 15 years ago or no no the first the amount of money going out of money it, well the fees kind of got added on a little bit at a time but the eight million dollars of state general fund um, and Economic Development Initiatives Fund, the $8 million of state money. That was 1989. Yeah, 1989. So we have not accounted for inflation. No. (laughs) Wow. And we haven't had an increase. And so this is huge to get this money added. And the, the legislature and the governor have done a fantastic job of supporting that and moving that forward. Um, the House Water Committee was amazing. And just a shout out to the whole process being the most bipartisan collaborative effort I have ever seen on the part of There was of so much support, so much support. It was a really great thing to watch. Yeah, it was, it was an environment where you would see testifying in favor of this bill. You had Farm Bureau, the Livestock Association, the Nature Conservancy, a laundry list of municipalities and all of these entities that have an interest in water i've never seen them all come together and say this is what we want and we this all want the we, same yeah, thing we agree oh. yes. <laughs> and kansans for conservation yes. which is a group of conservation organizations that come together to support this also it was just such a diverse group that all said yes yes and more yes <laughs> And Congratulations. One, thing that, one thing that I've never seen before, and it was just a joy, and how often can you talk about a legislative activity as being a joy, but in the committee hearing, when they finally voted yes for this bill to move it on to the full House floor, when it got out of committee, every single member voted for it, and everyone who was in attendance in the audience stood up and clapped. Wow. In the State House. Yes. It was incredible. And then they said, we need a picture. So the whole committee got together so that people could take pictures of them. <laughs> that's how monumental that's how it was a big earth deal. shattering this really was. So it was really cool. Wow. Yeah. Congratulations. Like Laura said, I mean, that's yeah huge. And that's one huge. thing I'll throw in there too with that bill is $52 million to pay down by way of investing at first, but to ultimately pay down the remaining debt we have on those reservoirs. So when that's all done, all of the state debt that we owe the federal government, which a year ago was over $136 million, is, is now going to be completely paid. So it's a wonderful, Amazing. fiscally responsible thing to do. So that segues nice into one of our concluding questions, which is what do people get wrong about water in Kansas? I, I personally think 
that what people would be surprised to know is that everyone is working together. It's really not completely divisive might like people might think and you know the perfect example was the support for house bill 2302 i mean everyone came together and said we need to solve these problems and we've heard the same thing on all of the other issues that are in the state water plan people um, from all different sectors whether it's agriculture municipal um, the general public, the conservation environment, everyone says we need to solve these and we need to solve them together. We need to not be like Colorado, Nebraska, California, uh, all of Nevada, New Mexico. Do I have them all? Uh, <laughs> Almost. <laughs> <laughs> we, need, we need to solve our own problems here and um, take care of uh, the people in the state of Kansas. Because when, when you think about water and what Don's referring to is the, the decimation of the Colorado River Basin and the, the, the draconian cuts that are already starting throughout all the states there and the infighting and, and controversy and, you know, lines in the sand and, and all that, we don't have to go there. And we don't have to be that. And from time to time, there may be little voices and little places that try to create controversy and, and stir up some kind of battle lines. But the best news, as Don said, is that doesn't work here. And it's we're showing how we don't have to go down that road. It's so easy. When you talk about water, nothing's more fundamental. And when you get down to it, if you think you don't have enough, it's easy to slide into a fight. And I'm really proud that so far we are approaching this as a team. I just got chills. I know. I was just going to say mic drop. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I think we've done a really good job of uh, talking about the severity of these issues. Um, So I won't, I won't dare have you repeat what keeps you up at night. Uh, I think we all know what some of the issues are that we're facing, but we do like to end our episodes with a challenge for our listeners. So based on what you've shared today, what would you like to challenge our listeners with? How can they contribute to water quantity and quality in Kansas? I think one of the easiest things, and I may be stealing Don's talking point, is attend a regional advisory committee meeting. Just go and see what's going on. Check out the Water Office website. Just Google water in Kansas. See, there are, there's so much information out there. Um, the EPA has a website even that you can say, where does my water come from? And it's a cool little interactive feature where you put in a drop of water and follow it where it goes all the way to the sea. Um, your, your curiosity and imagination can take you many places, but right in your own backyard, you can attend a RAC meeting. I would agree. Yes, attend a RAC meeting, attend a water authority meeting, come to the state house. Yes. There are many opportunities for you to get engaged with water days or different types of um, opportunities at the state house to come and talk to folks about the things that are important to you. I would say also that if you are a landowner or if you, uh, are part of a family that has land, contact your local conservation district and see what types of conservation practices are available to help you on your land. There are lots of opportunities and the conservation district can help you find the right program. So we really recommend that you get engaged that way. Well, Connie, Don, thank you guys both so much for joining us today. Um, Flatlanders, as usual, if you like this episode, um, be sure to share it with others. We'll have some um, additional um, items for you in the show notes, including book recommendations from both of these experts. And as always, remember, flat 
is a state of mind. Flatlander Podcast is made possible through a partnership between the Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks and the Kansas Wildlife Federation. Sound and production by Megan Mayhew. Music by Kansas locals, The Box Turtles. Become a member of KWF for free by visiting kansaswildlifefederation.org. And be sure to follow KWF on Facebook at Kansas Wildlife Federation and on Instagram at KS Wildlife Fed. Stay up to date on all things KDWP by following the department on Facebook at Kansas Wildlife and Parks and on Instagram at the KDWP. Remember, the Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks is supported by flatlanders like you through the sale of licenses and permits. Consider buying a hunting or fishing license today to conserve and protect the wild spaces and faces that make Kansas more than flyover country. Country.